So we are recording on Friday, October 23rd, day after the second presidential debate. And I have a confession to make. I didn't watch the debate. Frankly, I've already made up my mind who I'm voting for and nothing's going to change my mind that's going to come out in a debate. And I know both of these candidates pretty well. And also as a, as a pundit scholar type, I'm pretty sure the debates don't matter. Or at least if they do matter, it's not the debate itself that matters, but the subsequent political coverage, which I can read. And yet these debates have become these sort of marquee events in the campaign. So today we're going to discuss presidential debates in politics and question style. We're going to go big, think about the, you know, how we should evaluate presidential candidates and the role of the debates and helping us do that and, you know, come up with some ideas for how we might do debates differently. So welcome to Politics in Question, the show where we talk about our political institutions, what's wrong with them and ideas for fixing them. I'm Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner, a Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. So did you guys watch the debate? I live blogged it for 538. Does that mean you watched it? <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> I, I did watch the debate. Um, I I thought it was, uh, I'm not sure who the uh, who the candidates were. Donald Trump seemed especially uh, well behaved in this debate, so it was a little bit more boring. But I did watch it. How about you, Lee? You did not watch it. You're going to admit that. You know, I was. I'd rather read a book at night. It helps to helps to calm me down and, and give me a good night of rest, which you know I need if we're going to record a podcast the next day. Because if I don't get enough sleep, I'm going to be totally incoherent. I will probably help you test that hypothesis. Um, All right, it's testable. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. I, I don't always watch them if I'm not live blogging them, but I feel like this it's a good exercise to do because we add context, which is fact checking, but like fact checking is not always like, is that number right? Sometimes is that, but it's also kind of like, what is the bigger picture of this? How is the, you know, Republican or Democratic Party evolved on this issue? How might this this land, given what we know about public opinion? So I do feel like it's a good thing to do. And I feel like we're in this kind of weird moment where people find politics really stressful and painful and exhausting, but also are really invested in the stakes of it. So I feel like live blogging some of these events allows people to get a little bit of distance, but also stay informed and plugged in. Yeah, I think that's right. And also... If you want to be in the know around the water cooler, although I guess that's a virtual water cooler these days, you know, everybody's talking about it. You got to you got to at least know some of what you're talking about, Lee. So, you know, you should probably have watched it. Come on now. Um, But, you know, if you the the commentary, I think the live blogging, Julia, your stuff is great. I think if you're going to look for commentary on debates live blogging is is especially a good place to go. And and some sites like 538, I think, are especially good at it. One of the things that really annoys me about these debates is, and I think we're going to talk about some of this uh, today in our episode, if you turn on like any of the network news shows, uh, you know, covering this debate before and after, it's like they're getting ready for like a prize heavyweight, you know, boxing match. And it seems to be the things they're talking about are completely irrelevant, at least in my opinion, to our political system and, and what's happening and, and how we, you know, how these debates should inform our, our understanding and our votes. It's like, you know, what's Trump thinking backstage? Like, is he le- listening to like the final countdown really loud before he goes up to get really psyched up? You know, what's Biden doing to, you know, to stay awake? You know, these types of things. It's It seems like it's just completely um, you know, a spectacle and not actually focused on what the debate is actually meant to do. Well, I mean, since Trump is trapped in the 80s, he probably was listening to the final countdown. 
final countdown. Was that Europe? But, but yeah, it was. I mean, it was in the era in which they were bands were named for continents. Europe, Asia. It's weird. We don't do that anymore. Well, maybe we should start a band. Antarctica? Yeah, maybe America was already playing. taken. Yeah. yeah. Been through the desert with a horse with, with no name. Horse with no name. Yeah, I know. Classic. <laughs> All right. Okay, you, I'm you, sorry. You I'm, came here for the, I'm muting my microphone now. You, you came here for the political science and you came away with some classic tunes here. All right. So let's let's take this a step back um, and, you know, start big. People are voting for president early uh, they're making their minds up. What makes a good president? Like, what should people think about when they are selecting a president? Assuming there's like one person listening to this podcast who hasn't made their mind up yet. But like, like, what should debates? What should debates like help us to 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 evaluate? Like, what what are we looking for in a good president? I feel like this is a little bit of a leading question, Lee, because I think that my answer to this really speaks directly to some things you've already written. So I'll just make that link for you. But I want to acknowledge the. I want to acknowledge what's with the subtext here. So I said this a lot during the primaries, which is that I think that how how presidents make decisions is really important. Um, and it's really important. It's a really important way of distinguishing among candidates from the same party. I think partisan polarization kind of moves it down the priority list when you're making a decision in the general. Although you know, there was some evidence in 2016 that people saw Trump as a strong leader and a successful business person, right? And that that contributed to support for him, even though there's, you know, not necessarily a lot of evidence for the, particularly for the latter, which is an empirical claim. But presidential scholars kind of talk about leadership sometimes. And I think in the rest of the field of political science, it sort of has become really unprestigious because it's hard to measure but if you look at the way that presidents have made decisions, like who is in who is in the White House when the thing that is not predicted happens, like a pandemic, like a major terrorist attack, right? Who who that person is, partly you know what party they're from and who they take their influence from, but also their ability to evaluate information, um, the kinds of people that they surround themselves with. I mean, these are all really important kinds of questions, and I mean, I don't think we get a ton in debates about that. I have this theory about debates, which is that a lot of debate questions and the way that debates are currently structured is around this sort of 20th century concept of authenticity. Um, and I think it actually comes from, to some degree, like the evolution of the parties from being ideologically diverse to being more ideologically distinct is like debates have become this way of asking like who are you really ideologically are you really in the center of your party or are you on on the wings or alternately are you you know a, a dyed-in-the-wool conservative or liberal or are you actually going to attack to the center i think it it has you know this is where you get the sort of defend your position on this thing is like really questioning someone's authenticity and i don't know if that was ever particularly useful but it's certainly not now um, and I think anything that can give us a better sense of how candidates make difficult decisions and organize and take in information and how they perform under pressure is, is really important. I think that's right. And, uh, you know, I want to take a step back a little bit. And there's this notion of, of leadership in general. It is very common in, in presidential studies, but in, in terms of how we typically think about the world in politics uh, and also especially with regard to Congress, this notion that individuals can change history, that individuals matter, that individual people and not broad patterns and, you know, events, uh, you know, kind of the, the logic underlining behavioralism, their, their, their intention with one another. But I think that 
when we talk about the presidency, it is a bit refreshing at times because we do have to kind of grapple with the idea that individuals actually matter. They're the ones that make history. They're the ones who change history. Uh, whether you're talking about Abraham Lincoln or Winston Churchill or Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And, you know, that gets us to the question of, you know, what is leadership? How do we identify it? This is the data challenge that Julia identified. But does that challenge change over time? You know, what makes a good leader? Does that change over time? And we have to grapple at least at some level with these types of questions before we can assess debates, because debates are a format also that change over time. But they're going to reveal uh, different aspects or different kinds of information about these leaders. And sometimes that debate, that that information may be particularly suited for the kind of leader that we need at a particular point in time. And other times it may not be. And then, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the way in which we conduct debates, I think the way that we approach debates today is completely different in the way we cover them and talk about them than how we used to approach. Uh, approach presidential debates. And so maybe that's not necessarily well suited for how, you know, we should pick our next president. And one thing that really irks me is, is a is a constitutionalist, as an institutionalist, and as someone who who studies Congress and is kind of obsessed with the place, is that these debates don't really talk about Congress all that much. And when you really think about it, the president doesn't have a lot of authority and power to do a lot of the things that they're talking about doing in these debates. At one point, the debate moderator even said, but you're the president. And it's like, well, so what? You're the president. The president doesn't get to vote on bills. The president doesn't even get to introduce bills. And to the extent that we're talking about policy proposals, I think, you know, while yes, it is important what the president thinks, what is much more important is whether or not the president, you know, how the president's going to work with Congress to make that uh, that thing a reality. And that, I think, is something that has been missing from these debates and that format um, in this in this election, this campaign. So I, I agree with what both of you said. And I think you know part of the challenge is the way that we think about representation in our democracy. That we you know there's the classic Edmund Burke distinction between a delegate and a trustee. A delegate being somebody who just represents your position faithfully, and a trustee being somebody who invokes you know, his or her own judgment. And president is, is really a, a trustee in the sense that the president is going to have to make a lot of tough decisions. And you know, these are not the things that are going to come out in a debate stage where you can only have two minutes to give some pre-prepared quip and, and you know, make sure you manage your facial expressions well. But it is, a, I think, a real challenge in our politics to understand that we have to give some space and some room for leadership, for compromise, for negotiation. And that's really a, a trustee vision of representation. But so much of the way our campaigns are conducted and our political rhetoric is conducted is you know, we have to know exactly what you stand for. And it has to be exactly what we want you to stand for. And we have to show or you have to show us the, the results which I think leads to this kind of cycle of overpromising and disappointment. And I think the, the, the debate format that we have is something that kind of plays into that and exacerbates that. So I want to kind of move to another question, which is to ask, like, well, like what, did, what have we learned? Have we, have we learned anything from the debate so far? I mean, is there any way in which this debate format serves the, serves the public and, and serves decision making? 
in presidential elections. Well, the candidates have bad tie selection taste, so I think there's that. Yeah, that's a, that's a tie um, there. <laughs> oh, my God. The, uh, tie, the, the <laughs> fashion was pretty terrible. I got sort of obsessed with the differences between their flag pins, just probably a sign this election's been going on for too long. Yeah, and, and, and stuff that happens on the fly, right? I mean, that's... So, you know, I mean, is there any added value? I mean, what would are we better off because we had two debates and I guess one vice presidential debate with the fly reference? So, I mean, I think that there is like generally, I don't know. I haven't thought about whether they've added value per se. That's a that's actually a really good question. You know, what would we not know about candidates? I'm not sure that that's exactly this is a very cerebral way of thinking about politics. I think that, again, they sort of served a purpose in this 80s and 90s period of revealing candidate issue stances when partisanship didn't, wouldn't automatically line up with all issue stances. Um, and they also provided, I think, a sort of sense of, I don't say mobilization, because I don't think that there's any evidence that they mobilize people, but kind of allowing people into the electorate and kind of picking a team and feeling like that team was winning. This is one of the things I've been thinking a lot about with debates is the connection between debates and like the the work that people like Liliana Mason have been doing on partisanship as a as a team identity and the moments in which a debate allows you to feel like that's happening. I think that we generally see that as pretty negative, but again in this in this more kind of uh, mixed period of party ideology, that has a certain kind of function. Um, in this period this year, I think debates have had a really interesting kind of effect because on the one hand, this has been the year that's exemplified the weight of partisanship and the fact that nothing matters in changing public opinion. Yet there was an interesting observation. This was on Twitter by Boston College political scientist Dave Hopkins. And he noted that it actually kind of looked like maybe that first debate between Biden and Trump in which Trump had just interrupted and misinformed and just like kind of all of these all of these ways in which he acted like a candidate who is kind of, you know, anti-democratic and not very responsive to, you know, social cues did seem to have a lasting impact. And so I don't know exactly how to bring that home to value added, but I think that it weirdly in this year when nothing has matter that debates have become this kind of focal event, maybe because people are stuck at home and there aren't as many live campaign events. Um, debates are standing in among among partisans that way, maybe because they're they do actually highlight some of these more individualized factors that have, that kind of came down at the margins to some of what mattered for Trump in 2016. But I think that that's like if we're going to talk about the role of debates, we have to situate them first in this sort of 20th century TV and candidate centric context, and then think about how that that role has evolved in a partisan polarization. And I don't think it's necessarily like a net loss of value or a net gain, but I think it's different kinds of value added potentially. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point, Julia. And this, this temporal aspect of the changing context, uh, I think impacts the value of debates. And I really like this question. Um, it impacts the value of the debates, but it also, it changes how, what kind of role they serve for us. But I do think that in general, Generally speaking, there is value in in getting the two candidates in the same room. I think there's something to be said for that just because it's probably the only time you see that other than, say, like an inauguration where I guess they're not technically in a room. You know, you put them up ne right next to each other and, and you allow them to be, you know, you can kind of take your measure of, of the candidates. Uh, I think in addition to that, um, 
I think there's value in it for people who don't follow politics necessarily as closely as as we do or others, uh, political junkies do, who don't necessarily work um, in this venue or field for a living. But I do think, though, getting back to the temporal aspect and what Julia was saying, that I think they're less important uh, today as an information revelation mechanism. And, and I, I think the partisan point is a very good one. But I also think we've had this ongoing communications revolution. It's been happening for a while now, but today, especially with social media, with, you know, I, I'm not sure I know what TikTok is, but it's always in the news these days. And I think that people use it a lot, apparently. Um, but I guess there are there's lots of information out there for people and there've always been lots of information, but I think it's a lot easier today. And I say that not, you know, just completely off the top of my head speculating, but it seems to me that it's a lot easier for people to get information as a campaign unfolds. And so maybe the debate isn't necessarily as important. It's also with this new information, it brings, um, you know, proponents and opponents of the two candidates into conflict with each other a lot of times. And that's also what the debate does. And I think also, if you think about our campaigns today, we don't really talk about policy and we don't really talk about a lot of the details. In fact, so far as I could tell, whenever the, you know, the policy issue would come up last night, it was, you know, the two candidates agreeing with each other essentially, but then talking about how maybe they're going to do it differently. But then you don't really get a lot of policy specifics out of that. And I do want to contradict myself here just a little bit. And earlier, I'm, I was criticizing the spectacle of presidential debates, but I do think there's some value in that, or at least I'm not sure it's a positive value, but the theater aspect of it, it does. In fact, I think the pageantry is important. It's important in creating this, this power of the presidency and the public imagination I think it's important in bringing the, the people behind the idea that the presidency is is a, the one institution that represents all Americans. In reality, there isn't a national electorate. We've talked about this with the Electoral College. But in our imagination, at least, there's this notion that the president is the person who represents all Americans because all Americans vote for the president. And I think the debates and the debate format and the kind of debate night in America aspect of this whole thing does create um, a lot and add to a lot of that pageantry of the president, which I think is important because the president is also our head of state. And, you, and when you have a head of state, you have to have the pageantry associated with it. The presidency can't just become another kind of partisan um, you know, office because it also has to do the person who occupies that office has to do a lot of things that represent the entire nation. Yeah. So, so Lee, you've written a whole lot about different formats for debates. And one of the things that you've written about is a crisis simulation. So, you know, I'm hoping we can talk a little bit more about what that might mean. I think that the work that you've, you've done on um, debates and some of the things you, you've written on your, your former blog, Polyarchy on Vox, are really helpful for us to think about this because debates are actually this kind of evolving form. And we've seen lots of different kinds of ways of having, you know, having candidates together. One of the other formats you had suggested in like in the nomination format was like, why not have a debate with candidates from both parties? And that is actually something that sometimes happened in the middle of the 20th century. Speaking about a kind of general election debate, I think that that would be really useful, particularly to get beyond some of these partisan issue position questions and into kind of who is this candidate as a person. So I'm really looking forward to hearing you more say more about that. I also wanted to add a couple of responses to what James said and what we've been talking about more broadly. One of the things I want to really underscore what James said about getting the candidates in the same place. I think this is a really critical part of debates that we don't really think about. But now that 
democratic values and norms are kind of disintegrating around us, it's it's actually really important to have these representations of what it means to have to have legitimate opposition. And to the degree that Trump has not participated in that, despite it appearing on the debate stage, and we haven't even really discussed his refusal to debate last week via Zoom, right? We've we've got several examples of, of him undermining that commitment to legitimate opposition that way. In the first debate, he refused to to acknowledge a peaceful transfer of power. So I actually think this really showcases like what democracy is, what what are the sort of basic standards that everyone, regardless of ideology, ought to sign on to, and then where might the candidates fall short. These candidates are some potential candidates in the future. So I think we ought to not discount some of these things that they seem like mundane window dressing until they're not there. The other thing that I wanted to point out as we talk about the effects of debates, I read recently um, an interview with Erica Franklin Fowler of Wesleyan University, who directs a project on advertising. And one of the things that that she reminded us in the context of campaign ads, but I think it's also applicable to debates, is this idea that just because the effects of something are short-lived and small, that's not the same as nothing. And I think that that's really also an important thing to think about with, with debates is, particularly as we get as we were fairly late in the season as we are now, just because a debate doesn't fundamentally shift a person's thinking on every on every dimension of every issue doesn't mean that it doesn't have some kind of impact on their vote when it happens 10 days out from the election. And it also, just because it's a small effect or it only affects a few people, I and mean, we've been a little bit, I think, dismissive in some cases of people who aren't paying attention or are undecided, but... In every election, there are some of those people. There would be fewer in 2020, and this it looks like this election might not be as close. But most of our recent presidential elections have been close. And so just because a debate only affects a few people doesn't mean, um, or at the margins, doesn't mean it's not important. So these are kind of some general thoughts. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping to, to get more from you, Lee, on what kind, of, what kind of crisis simulation you imagine. I have to admit, I sort of envision it being having like a double dare feel. If you watched that show back in the 80s, and I'm kind of imagining the candidates like sliding out. Who was this first president of the United <laughs> States? Pepperoni pizzas. Right. Dare. I'm kind of imagining them like sliding down like a slide that's decorated with with cream to look like a tongue. And I feel like that's not that's not right. So grape juice fanatics. The question is to you, who is the first president of the United States? Double dare. Um, um, Thomas Jefferson. It's Thomas. Je- it's got to be Thomas Jefferson, right? Uh, um, but but real quick, though, before Lee and I want you to jump in on what Julia was asking about. But I, there's also I think I want to underscore one other thing that Julia said in terms of the impact of debates. They can also give candidate uh, the supporters of candidates better information about why they're supporting a particular candidate. Uh, you know, the the impact is not necessarily just in terms of changing their votes or make leading undecideds to pick their candidates. I mean, I think in 2016. Uh, there was a lot, a lot of Trump supporters potentially, or Republicans, uh, really liked the bravado they saw from the president in those debates. It was a, it was a refreshing kind of break for them, whether that's good or bad, from the kind of normal drudgery of our uh, political, our politics up to that point. So, I think these debates can also inform uh, candidate supporters, uh, give them a better understanding of why, in fact, they're they're supporting their candidates, which is also, I think, an important impact. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure we need debates to do that, but I, I see your point. I, you know, the crisis simulation idea, which I you know, wrote in a Washington Post op-ed a few back in, I think it's 2015, you know, was sort of came out of the sense that the debates were really boring because everybody was just spouting these these platitudes, basically, or these, you know, bickering answers. And that, as Julia said earlier, what you really want in a president is somebody who can make good decisions, particularly under pressure. So, you know, I mean, crisis simulations are something that, that are done in the corporate world. You know, if you're going to hire a CEO, you want to know how would they perform under a, under some sort of crisis. So you could envision a terrorist attack, a financial crisis, a pandemic. And uh, my kind of vision is this like reality TV production of presidential candidates deal with a crisis with real actors. And you just kind of get a sense of how somebody performs and how they think through and how they reason through, which, you know, I think is a very important dimension. I mean, we, we get the partisan policy dimension through ongoing campaigning and just the nature of our, our partisan politics. But, you know, the the how does this person think through? How does this person make decisions? I think also it also, you know, and, and James talks about this help of, of educating voters to what they like or what they don't like about the candidates. You know, I think it also helps voters to understand what the role of the president actually is. I mean, these debates make it seem like the president makes policy and makes laws, but Congress makes the laws. The president executes the laws. I mean, in some respects, we, we should really just be having a, you know, a debate on execution of the laws, not what the law should be, but how you would how you would implement laws. And also foreign policy is where the president has the most power. And yet the debates this year have probably focused much less on that. So part of it is is really trying to help us to think about what the role of the president is and who is better suited for that role. You know, I mean, if you were going to hire somebody to run your company and you were down to two candidates, you wouldn't have them debate against each other. Maybe you would. I don't know. But I mean, I've never heard of that. So I, I don't know. I mean, are our debates useful? Should we should we update the format? Should we do Lincoln Douglas debates? No. You know, that, that lasts three hours and, and the first candidate nope. speaks nope. for an hour. Nope. And then, nope. I've been know. to enough faculty meetings. No. So I'm, I'm just going to like blatantly just kind of jump in here because I, I want to I kind of want to point something out and then actually throw this to James, who I suspect has more to say about it than I do, which is, I like, I mean, as I said, Lee, I think your your idea that we should be more innovative about this and we should think about debates as they relate specifically to the office of the presidency is really important. But I'm not totally sure about the, the corporate analogy. It does seem to me that we're doing we're doing something different, right? We're not hiring someone. This is a, This is a democratic process. And it does have some kind of, you know, there are these sort of civic and democratic values that it needs to to symbolize and demonstrate and embody. And so that's where I think some of what we're seeing, I think maybe is, you know, attention in our, our thinking, but also attention in the content, which is that you're hiring someone or we're, we're choosing someone, I should say, to to do the sort of executive job, but in a democratic context. And these things have kind of always been in tension and maybe are particularly so in the in in a partisan era and in an era with a you know very expansive federal government so you know i'm not totally sure like should should debates lean into one side of that or the other should they try to help us evaluate that tension i don't really know yeah i think that's it's an interesting thing i think the 
the questioning almost already gets in that direction. But the idea of when, when we talk about the corporate analogy, I mean, the idea is that we are hiring someone to do a job and that we know what that job is and that there is a right answer at the end as to what that job is and the outcome and the you know, kind of the thing that it's making, if you will. And that's not necessarily the case, right? I think that these debates can be effective in terms of if we were to model them differently or think about them differently in terms of what is it right now that we are trying that we are arguing about, right? What are the issues that we want to prioritize? What are the issues that we don't want to prioritize? Why, you know, where do the candidates stand on that? How, you know, how how do we want to tackle certain problems? Should we should we be dealing with this, right? I mean, the idea of, of COVID, I think, and we've had the a, a episode, a past episode talking about the failures of presidential leadership here. I think we're all pretty much in agreement on terms of a role for the federal government um, in the in, in the pandemic response, but there may there are others who may not be, and certainly in other areas as well, like education or other things. And I think that these debates, as we have them today, are basically it's a, it's like a, you're interviewing a, a CEO. It's like we both agree that we want to build iPhones, and this is the way that we're going to build that iPhone better. When maybe we shouldn't be in agreement on that in the first place, and maybe the voters out there aren't in agreement on that. And that the presidency, because it is a di- bit different than Congress in terms of Congress is really a crucible of conflict. It is a place where they're supposed to adjudicate our disagreements and then, yes, eventually pass laws. The presidency, at least in theory, is about execution. As Lee said, the administration, again, in theory, is about the application of expertise to 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 fulfill um, kind of duties that have been assigned to it by the Congress uh, via a kind of more contentious process. And so we don't get, um, but there is a lot of content, there is a lot of discretion in that, in the, in the administration, as we all know. Um, there's a lot of power that presidents have um, in today's day and age. And so politics does play into it. And I think because of the unique nature of that aspect, the campaign has to inform us of that. And, and, and to the extent that we continue to get away from, from those more contentious questions and, and trying to identify disagreements and divisions between the candidates and their worldviews, I think as the debates become even less valuable. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's true. The president does act as the kind of policy agenda setter. But you know, where presidents have the most policy impact, of course, is in the executive branch agencies and particularly foreign policy. So, you know, in, in some ways, you know, I mean, it matters whether Joe Biden supports a public option because he can communicate that and he can you know, press Congress on that. But, you know, if, if you want to understand what Joe Biden would actually do on health care, you want to sit down and say, all right, let's talk about HHS. Who's the type of person that you would want to run HHS? What would be their mandate? Let's talk about the environment. Who's the type of person who you would want to have run the EPA? What would what would you tell them to do? You know, financial policy. Let's talk about who is the type of person that you would want as Treasury Secretary? You know, what would you direct them to do? Uh, you know, under under these conditions, how do you see the the trade off between you know unemployment and inflation, uh, or is there no trade off? Right, I mean, like you know, I mean, these are the areas where you know, pre- presidents have the most power, and you know the the choice of presidential priorities is the most significant. Whether or not we you know wind up with a public option depends a lot more on Congress than what Joe Biden says on the debate stage. Uh, 
so, I mean, that that is another area where I, I think our, our debates fall short. And, you know, frankly, our our, you know, presidential campaigns that were really focused on Joe Biden, you know, as as the sort of Joe Biden, he's an empathetic guy, he's a nice guy, Trump is a menace. Um, but we're less focused on, all right, well, like who, who's who's going to be labor secretary? Is it going to be Bernie Sanders, you know, or you know, who, who apparently wants to uh, do that? But, you know, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, I was thinking about where where debates matter. And I think there is one debate this year that, that may wind up mattering, which is the Iowa debate uh, in which uh, Joni Ernst really, really flubbed it. Uh, when she was asked about the, the price of, of soybeans, which I guess is important to people in Iowa. And it, it showed she is out of touch, which I guess sort of was that, you know, you know, Gore Sy or the George H.W. Bush checking his watch thing. So, you know, I mean, do, does that matter? What would a debate if we're going to have debates or some sort of public pageant uh, like what what should we be getting out of those debates? I think those are two different sorts of things, though. The the Ernst soybeans question is is substantive, right? Um, whereas the the watch checking and the sighing is sort of like here's a narrative about this this candidate. Um, the other debate that seems like it might have mattered this year, if we're going to talk about um, other races, was the the Harrison Graham debate in South Carolina. Um, this I think helped Harrison become a more national candidate and and contributed to his. Um, record financial haul. I don't know if it'll win, um, but it certainly, it certainly, I think, makes um, Democrats feel like South Carolina could be could be competitive. And that's, I mean, these are somewhat different kinds of um, kinds of questions than um, than a national presidential um, presidential debate. I and mean, I like your idea about kind of asking people what their strategies are and what kinds of people they'll have in their cabinet. And I think it makes sense to start thinking about the presidency um, and all of the personnel that it entails. But that also sort of goes against what I was saying earlier about kind of crisis leadership, which is like what we would want to know is like this thing happens. Um, there's a financial crisis. There's a terrorist attack. There's a pandemic. There's a natural disaster. And it's like, okay, what... Not just what kind of federal structures do you already have in place for it, which is which is really key, but also, you know, how what's your communication strategy and how do you reallocate personnel? How how would you construct a task force? You know, who would you lead that? Would it be substantive experts or political operatives? Um, And there are legitimate cases for both of those types of directions. You know, what kinds of. Uh, what kinds of trade-offs would you be willing to make in order to deal with that? I mean, that is ultimately kind of the question around the federal COVID response and state-level COVID responses is, you know, people being being really resentful and frustrated about what they've been asked to do. Um, and, you know, similarly, it sort of, I don't know if this debate is, if this trade-off is totally similar, but like after 9-11, you got this sort of security and freedom trade-off that people had, you know, had different responses to. But those are the types of questions. And that, so here's where I am somewhat more of a skeptic of the crisis simulation. I just don't know how we get, how we create that artificially. Um, I just, I just don't know. Like, I think this aspect of the presidency that is so critical and so important is very hard to know. Um, And I don't, I don't have a good solution. Yeah, I think that's, I think what we're seeing here is that 
the questions matter. The questions that are asked are extraordinarily important. And I think that I like this idea of asking questions about that are associated with the presidency, not, you know, how are you going to stop climate change? Well, that's great. But if if you're not saying by working with Congress, it's kind of irrelevant how you're going to stop climate change, because, you know, first of all, climate change is at the top of the public's agenda. And it seems to me that within Congress and the institutional agenda there, it's nowhere to be found in either in either party, precisely because the parties are divided on it. And so maybe a great question for the president is, you know, how are you how are you planning to, on using your office to force this issue onto the congressional agenda, even though your party doesn't appear to be particularly thrilled about taking it up right now or immigration or, you know, name the issue? Um, so I think that's a good thing. I also think asking questions about the different cabinet uh, officers is, is a good thing because it also, I think, shows maybe not necessarily to everyone, but to certainly people like Julia who are live blogging, who can then educate us all, you know, by by selecting certain individuals or saying this is the kind of person I'm looking for, that then I think provides a lot of insight into not only how that president will lead, but also the kind of policy positions of that president. One thing I wanted to flag that's interesting here is that the Commission on Presidential Debates is, you know, if debates are valuable or if they have an impact, it seems that you have this shadowy organization that we don't really know, or maybe we do and I just don't know, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of public attention to it, how it makes its decisions, who, like how it selects its members, and then ultimately how it selects its, its the questions, the topics, uh, those types of things, the structure. Uh, and that's, I think, important in a world where, maybe not this world where presidential debates aren't that important, but if they are important for whatever reason, and I think they can be in the future, it, it is really interesting to think that we have this commission that isn't necessarily itself susceptible to public um, accountability uh, that's, that's playing a very massive role here. And lastly, I mean, I don't know, what do we need, like a turn back the clock night on one of the presidential debates where they show up in like, you know, powdered wigs and knickers and knee breeches and stuff and bells on their shoes? I don't know. That would be fun. Yeah. Speak about, talk about pageantry. Um, I agree on the, you know, Commission for Presidential Debates. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's basically this sort of uh, totally unaccountable organization that gets to set the rules for the debates, which which is... Can we get on it? Is if anyone's listening who knows how to do yeah, this, please yeah. add Julia Lee and I for the next uh, the next election season. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so I I think one of the things and I kind of want to move us towards a little bit of of a conclusion here that comes up for me in this conversation is that what what we really want to get out of a president is not the sort of snap answers of my po- you know under my tax policy you know X Y Z because guess what you know. Whatever starts out as your tax policy is not going to be the tax policy that comes out. It's not like we're voting that tax policy, but but a, a sort of like how do you reason through trade-offs, which politics is all about trade-offs. How do you work through tough decisions? And you know, there's also another style of question, James. You talk about the questions, and this is the the Joni Ernst question, which is the kind of pop quiz question. It was you know when when there are a bunch of Democratic candidates who couldn't name the president of of Mexico, if you remember that during the primaries, which was you know kind of to you know a little little bit of a shocker to me. Like Amy Klobuchar just was like, I have no idea, you know, which I think was you know to you know I mean to me like there's a certain baseline knowledge that you should have as president, and maybe it's not 
you know, who's the president of Mexico, though, you know, it seems like anybody who, you know, is reads the news and, and, you know, occasionally checks the foreign affairs page should know that. But like, you know, some basic principles of how the Constitution works, how the government works. I mean, you know, if you, you know, I mean, one of the things that I think has really undermined Trump's ability to be an effective president is just like a basic misunderstanding of how the presidency works. So like, you know, if you if you are you know, selecting a president and you want that president to do some things, you probably want them to have a basic understanding of how things work. Yeah, I think that's right. I I had forgotten about that Klobuchar thing. That was just stunning. I was really surprised by that. Is that is that weird? I mean, I don't necessarily, Klobuchar isn't necessarily the closest to me ideologically or anything, but I always thought she was like a pretty smart, uh, accomplished public servant. And that was just, that was just stunning. Also just debate prep. Come on. I mean, like know who Canada and know more about Canada and Mexico, especially because of the trade issue that has been front and center. Right. I mean, that's probably something that your staff should tell you in, in debate prep. So I had forgot, I had literally forgotten all of this stuff about Klobuchar. I had forgotten about the salad. This is like, that was, that was our 2019 controversy was aiming Klobuchar throwing stuff and eating salads with combs. Okay. So it was an innocent time. I think that's right. I also think that beyond, I mean, clearly candidates flub these pretty basic factual issues. I think, you know, it would be useful to have debates that asked candidates to talk in some depth about, you know, how do these things work? But one thing I want to note as we close up and I can I can sort of wrap up with with this um, is that we are talking about debates mostly in a context in which we have two normal candidates who have signed on to the basic rules who are coming in with some basic preparation and some some sense of the job and what it entails, even if I think, you know, one way to kind of think about being president is almost, you know, everybody by definition is a little underprepared. Um, but, you know, it's clear that, that Trump, I don't think he fits any of those things, right? I don't think he's really signed on to the basic democratic formal and informal rules of the game. Um, I don't think he plays kind of by the rules in in communicative contacts and I don't think that he really took governing very seriously when he ran initially or even that he does now um and I might be very veering into editorial territory but I don't think I'm I don't think I'm alone in those evaluations and so I I think part of our problem in this moment so we're thinking about how the institution the sort of stability of the institution of the debate has evolved along this sort of changing political context is it's not only that the, the significance of debates has changed in a partisan period, but it also changes in a situation where one of the presidential candidates just doesn't operate according to all these basic rules and principles and constraints. And I don't, I don't know how we would design an institution to get, to get around that. And so I think we're all implicitly thinking that whoever is on that stage in 2024 will have reverted back to normal politics. But I just don't know at this stage if that's a safe assumption. No, I think that's right. And, I, you know, I don't know. This campaign is just so, so, you know, I think with the pandemic, with everything else that's happening, I'm not sure. I'm not sure 2020 is the best baseline year for uh, kind of looking at the kind of role of, of, of presidential debates in, in our in our campaigns. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the format has been kind of off for a while. And, you know, I, I think maybe this offers an opportunity to re-envision what 
we're doing with these debates and you know what we're really trying to select for you know i mean i think we want to get a sense of, of how these candidates think and maybe the debate format just doesn't work that it's better to have a a you know a sort of one on a detailed one-on-one -on -one interview uh with a with a journalist who can kind of like you know walk the candidate through well here how are you thinking about the EPA how are you thinking about you know these different agencies you know how do you, you know, there's a pop quiz element, you know, I'm going to throw a bunch of questions at you and, you know, you answer them. And then, you know, what the the production is that it's not live. Uh, it's 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 rather edited together so that you have the candidates back and forth, you know, responding to the same question. You know, and then you have a, another debate where, you know, where you can kind of air the differences that emerge out of that debate. So you kind of get a baseline of, you know, who is this? What's what does their presidency look like? What's the decision making style? How do they how do they view the trade offs? And, you know, and then a second debate that's more about the, the real points of, of disagreement that emerge from that first debate. So uh, I don't know, but I, I think it's a moment in which we ought to re-envision what role the debates are really serving and what, uh, you know, what would be the, the best role for whatever, you know, journalists or commission on presidential debate or whoever to kind of help maximally inform the public both about who the candidates are and what the, the role that they would play as presidency would be. Uh, any any other concluding thoughts? Well, I'm really into two things. One, us getting on the Commission for Presidential Debate so we can implement a lot of the things that we've talked about. And then two, the politics in question banned Antarctica or, you know, I guess Australia. Is there a ban? Well, you know, I mean, if folks like the theme music, that's a, that's a start. <laughs> People learn in different ways, and so we need new formats to reach them. All right, well, well politics in question, the musical. Uh, can we get a grant from the National Endowment for, for the Arts? Well, uh, yeah. Hopefully they're listening. Well, that's another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.